The following audio is from the chapel at Fishhawk. More information about the chapel at Fishhawk is available at www.thechapelfh.org. Father, I thank you for your good news. Lord, today we're looking at a psalm that you had Jesus cry out on the cross. We're looking at a psalm that was written almost a millennium before Jesus came, yet you, in your infinite wisdom, had it penned and written down and recorded and printed down so that when Jesus died on the cross in that moment, we would have a ton of stuff to learn about today. God, this was one of the most climactic moments of history. So we ask that you would change our heart this morning, that you would give us strength. And God, now that we have um, we've alleviated and made space in the children's room, but Lord, it to me, this feels... Uh, like there are now more seats than we, we need to have. So either, God, I want to give away some chairs or we're going to leave more people to know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, as I've been joking about over the last few weeks, just a, a heads up, I said that whenever one person gets pregnant at the chapel, there are always three people that end up pregnant. So we actually met the quota. That's how terrifyingly prophetic that truth is. There are now three women who are with child at the chapel. So if you were worried that you were going to get pregnant, you're in the clear because it only comes in threes, but if you get pregnant, the next two women will put a curse on you, okay? So, uh, so that's where we are today. We're going to be in Psalm 22, and the title of today's sermon is Unforsaken. Last week, we were unbreakable, and now we are unforsaken. This sermon, it's, um, it's only funny because my head mic broke last week. And so now I don't have my regular mic, so I can't use both my hands. But I discovered last service that when I hold one of these in my hands, it makes me feel like a stand-up comedian, even though it's not supposed to be a funny sermon. So you've been warned. We are going to jump in. I'm going to read from Psalm 22. If you are following along, I'll be jumping verses a little bit here because Psalm 22 is a huge chapter. But please read it on your own as your interest is peaked later today. We're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 22. This is God's word. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the works of my groaning, words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. I am poured out like water. This is verse 14, sorry. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot sherd. That's just a shard of a pot, a broken pot. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evil doers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Verse 21, save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you, you who fear the Lord. Praise him. 
all you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. We'll stop right there for now. This passage is mysterious to me because I love the Bible. I read the Bible. And one of the things that we see in this passage is that it's King David writing it. David's the little guy who killed the big guy with the little rock and then chopped off the big head with the big sword. Remember that guy? Okay. David is writing this psalm. He is penning it out. And he's saying that he was pierced in his hands and his feet. But, but we know that he was not pierced in his hands and feet. And it said that his enemies encircled him. And it says that his, his enemies were casting lots. They were gambling to see who got his clothes. But we know that that likely didn't happen to David. That's what happened to people when they were judged and found guilty and they were publicly executed. David was not publicly executed. If someone were to come after David, they would have come after him in a coup. They would have just killed the king and taken over the kingdom. That's what they did in his time. So when I read this psalm, without knowing anything about what's coming, because this psalm was written almost a thousand years before Jesus. When I read this psalm, I think, what is David talking about? Now, David, from time to time, is chased around by people who want to do him harm. David always responds with prayers that are things we don't pray today. He says things like, God, crush the bones of my enemy. Anyone woken up with that prayer in your tongue? I mean, like, and felt good about it, okay? No, like you might have prayed that for your, your boss, but you're not generally praying that. If you do pray that, you need Jesus. I do counseling for free, okay? Um, but what David says here, it's so interesting because he's making it sound like he's getting executed. In verses 6 to 8, it's he's out in public being mocked. In verse 17, people are gloating and scorning over him. In verse 15, he's dying of thirst. His tongue is stuck to his jaw. In verse 17, it says he can count his bones. He's emaciated and starving. We know that David was... Not any of these things. Verse 16, he was pierced. In verse 18, people were gambling for his garment, his clothes. Now, this does sound very familiar if you grew up in the church, right? Who went through these things? Starts with a J, rhymes with Jesus. Okay? Just so we're on the same page. This is something that has happened to Jesus. Now, when we read this book, we forget that this is 66 little books put inside one book binding. This psalm was written, it's undisputed, centuries and centuries before Jesus came to this world. Before Jesus was born by the Virgin Mary, before the first Christmas ever happened, God set up this psalm from David, and the Jewish people sang it over and over and over again. This was like their version of, Lord, I lift your name on high. Just overly done. Sorry, bad reference for this crowd? What age bracket are we here? This is like, shout to the Lord. Too old? This is like come thou fount? I'm seeing who's all the, see, I'm seeing who chuckles. Uh, come thou fount, like all the 50 and 60 year olds, like, <laughs> shout to the Lord, all the people who were stoned in the 70s, are like, <laughs> Lord left me in high as 90s. Early 2000s? Okay, never mind. We're going to keep going. I told you I had too much food today. Here's what we do know in Acts chapter 2, verse 30, Peter says that David was a prophet of God. And David wrote, seeing what God was planning for the future. So the King David, the the hero of Israel, God says was, Peter says he was God's prophet. He wrote down things that were going to happen in the future. When he penned these Psalms, he wasn't just writing them simply for his circumstances and simply for the Jewish people. He was saying, Jewish people, we need to learn these things, soak in these things, live in these things. And when Jesus was on the cross, in the moment that we are familiar with, if you've been to Easter services, At the ninth hour, at three in the afternoon, on the first Good Friday, Jesus said the cry that is the first part of this psalm. 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he died. So back then, they didn't have verses and chapters. They had scrolls. So a way that you would get somebody to go somewhere to read, you wouldn't just say, chapter 22, verse 1. He would say the first line of it. Because this is a song that the Jewish people would have sung. This is the song, it says, to the choir master. Not all the psalms were to music, but this one was. So for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jewish people had this song to sing. I don't know what it would go to. This week I got out my guitar and I tried to play what I thought the rhythm of this song would sound like. I don't know what a song sounds like where the first line is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It sounds like some sort of depressed Mumford and Sons album. Why are you so far from me? So the mystery is, why is David writing this psalm? I think the only solution we can come to is that it teaches us something about being forsaken and suffering, but it points us to the fact that in the end, Jesus was going to use this psalm as a banner for all of the world to see. Because Jesus was gloated over and mocked and emaciated and pierced, and they gambled for his clothing. And in the end of this psalm, in verse 27, it tells us that all of the people will turn to the Lord, the poor and the rich. It says that deliverance is coming in verse 21 and 22. In the end of this psalm, it says that endless generations will follow. David was pointing to something. Now, we're going to zoom in on just that cry Do you remember the first time you watched Braveheart? Do you guys remember that? When William Wallace yells out, freedom, right? Even as I say that right now, there's like at least half a dozen of the men in here want to scream it. Like everything in you and your wife's grip on your thigh is saying don't. But you're just thinking like, he just charged me up. This moment, it's, it's not a moment when the scream was just a docile, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how we read it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Blah, blah, blah. We just read the Bible as if we are a monotone person. We read the Bible like we heard it. Some of us grew up with the Bible app where we hear um, Max McLean, who reads it in a deep voice. Some of us grew up with the audio cassettes. I remember the first uh, audio Bible I had was James Earl Jones. Do you guys remember that Bible? It was the best. It was James Earl Jones on Ambien, um, and it just put me right to sleep. So we read the Bible that way, but this is the cry of Jesus, and, and you have to understand, Jesus had been through torture that none of us would ever or will ever probably see in our lifetime. First, he was betrayed, so that hurts. Close friend, one of your circle betrays you, and then they beat him. So if you've never been punched in the face, everyone thinks they know what they'll do when they get punched in the face, but Mike Tyson is very, very correct. He says everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Jesus was hit. And then after he was hit, they whipped him with the, the, uh, the, the lashes, and those are the cat of nine tails. It was strands of leather or rope and cord with stone or glass and shards of pottery, and they whipped Jesus' back, and it was meant to pull flesh from a skeleton. And then they pushed the crown of thorns onto his head. All this while, Jesus has said nothing. He's just said to Pilate, it is true what you heard. I am a king, but not like the one you're looking for. And then they betrayed him. And then they beat him. And then they put the crown on his head. 
And then they crucified him. They drove nails through his hands and feet into wood. And in none of this time does Jesus say anything. He's not saying, my back, my back. He's not saying, my hands. He's not saying, my head. He's not saying these things. It's only at the moment of his death that he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So I ask myself, He's screaming in pain, but he hasn't screamed this whole time. Whatever Jesus did, he was a tough person. But in this moment, his pain and the plan led to this cry. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when you are in pain, it's, um, there's physical pain, there's emotional pain, right? Have we all experienced a, some measure of physical pain? Um, so right now, my, uh, I've been sharing about my wife's pregnancy because it's a, an amazing journey for everyone except for her right now um, because she is sick. She is more sick than I've ever seen her. She's got morning sickness. All of the women in here who have given birth to a child, I apologize on behalf of your husbands because man is morning sickness crazy. And and I don't know if you're like me, but um, I've like broken my arm twice. I've broken this ankle. Right now I've got a little MCL thing going on. Physical pain hurts. But I've seen physical pain um, that I, I don't think I've ever experienced. I've watched the birth of a child. If you've ever watched the birth of a child, I, I can't imagine that there's anything that we could go through that could be that painful. Jesus seems like he went through something that was maybe as close as a male can get to physical pain, but he didn't cry out. If you want to hear crying out, I mean, I'm, I'm excited because I'm a people watcher, and every time my wife gives birth to a baby, I love just walking up and down the maternity ward because there's a bunch of just howls and screaming people, and you get to see what people are made of in that moment. You get to see nurses frantically running around. At the birth of my last baby, the doctor wasn't getting there in time, so I had all the nurses scrub me in. No joke. Full Grey's Anatomy. I was like, scrub me in, nurse, and they put the gloves on. I had the mask on. I had the blue skirt thing on. It was like a Scottish kilt-looking thing, and I was ready to catch the baby, and I was joking around. I was like, baby, push. You could do it. I'll catch. I know how to catch. I played catcher once when I was in second grade. Just shoot this thing out. You don't say that to your wife that's giving birth because pain, it hurts. But what would it cause a person who had made it through the pain of as much as a person could experience, close to childbirth, I'll just say? Yeah. When that baby came out of its mom, what would make that mom scream more than the physical pain? And here's where we get into what happened. His whole life, Jesus said, my father. My father in heaven said this. My father in heaven said that. My father in heaven said, go, 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 go. And then on the cross, Jesus is dying at the moment of death. He doesn't say, my father, my father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, you may be thinking, well, that's because in the psalm it says, my God, my God. And Jesus is pointing people to the psalm. But then if they knew Jesus was going to say it, why didn't they have David write, my father, my father? Because there is a specific reason in the moment that Jesus died on the cross, everything that we have ever done to offend God was placed on Jesus. 
everything. And I don't just mean the sins. It's not just do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, jaywalk, smoke, drink, cuss, girl, chew, go with girls, do all that. I don't mean that. I mean every time that you chose to love something that was finite more than you love the infinite. Every time you chose to find your worth and acceptance from something that isn't God of the universe, every time you placed the stock of who you are on your children's success instead of on what God has done for you, you've traded God for this lesser thing. And we all do it. I do it every day. I just shared in our small group last week. I said, isn't it amazing how parents, when we are in public, treat our kids totally different for the same crime if they do it in private, right? Parents, are you with me? If my kid throws themselves on the floor at home, what do I do? I say, fine, do what you want to do. It's tile and you only have a skull of bone. Bang away. I let them go at it. Or I send them up to your room. Get, move, go, keep walking, move. What happens if they do that at Applebee's during the dinner hour? They throw themselves on the floor. What do we all do? We pick them up. Whether we're man or woman, we put on our bat dad voice. Listen to me, you little cretin. If you don't stop this, I will destroy your life. And we put as much fear into them as possible because we want the acceptance and love of Applebee's employees and the people that are there for the 55 and over happy hour. Right? I mean, we wouldn't say that, but that's what we're doing because we're looking for our acceptance and approval in something beyond God. If we were secure in what Christ had done for us, our kid could throw themselves on the floor in Applebee's in the most crowded moment of the day, and I would just be like, Jesus loves me. Someone take care of that kid. He's not mine. It belongs to that lady over there. That's his mom. My wife and I, we always say this with the kids. When they're being bad, we call them your child. She, she already did that with the baby in her tummy. She said, your baby is making me sick. I was like, my baby? I haven't even kissed this little guy yet. Or girl, or twins. Okay, um, we're not having twins, by the way. If you pray that for me, a pox on both your houses. But Jesus, Jesus is crying out. I think the pain that Jesus is having is because all of the thing that we deserved, all of the breaking and seeking our acceptance and approval that we deserved, every time we've turned away from God, God said, I am pouring out the wrath that I cannot help but to have onto Jesus in this moment, which is why it wasn't my father, my father. Now it's my God, my God, you have forsaken me. In case you didn't know this, Jesus' love with the Father and the Spirit is eternal and infinite. The love is greater than any love you will ever experience. It's more deep and vast and wide than any love relationship that has ever or will ever exist. It's like the closest thing that we have is us losing a child or a spouse. But even that, it doesn't measure up because it's, God saying, my son, who I love more than anything, I'm going to turn my back on. And all of the wrath I have toward the times when people chose other things, I'm pouring on to Jesus. It was the only time in the history of the world that Jesus was forsaken. Jesus went into the hell, the, the, the heart of hell, so that we wouldn't have to be there forever. Because he is an infinite being. Jesus is the son of God. He absorbed the wrath we deserved. This is why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is separated from God. He experienced the infinite darkness because God is holy. Now we use this word in church. It's a church word, holy, means set apart, other than, different from us. We're going to talk about God's holiness today and God's love because in this 
cry from the cross, we see how holy God is, that he had to turn and basically tear his being apart to pay for the penalty that we deserved. This cry also shows us not only that, that Jesus took our place, he is the great substitute, it shows us that he is faithful. In, in this moment, he doesn't just say, God, God. He still, while being torn from God in this moment, becoming sin for us, even though he did not sin himself, in this moment, he still says, my God. Too many of us live our Christian life through something else, through our parents, through our church body, through our pastors, through someone else, a TV person, an author, and we hope that our Christianity is like theirs. And we think if I'm around them, then maybe, then maybe God will see and think more highly of me. Jesus is the great substitute. There is no other substitute. And Jesus is still connected to God. And he says, my God, my God. He doesn't speak to a far-off God. Some of you have not had a conversation with God in quite some time. Some of you have been talking to God as a faraway being, but he has not ever been your God. He's just been a God among gods. Jesus gives us this gift that he was forsaken so that we would be accepted, that he was condemned so that we would be set free. The cross became a tree of life for everyone because it was a tree of death for Jesus. Now, here's where this gets hard. Because God is love, on one hand, we get free grace. That's blank number one if you're a fill-in-the-blanker. I know we haven't done blanks a lot. And if you're a fill-in-the-blanker, because God is holy, we understand the high cost of grace. It's free to us, the cross, but it wasn't free. It cost Jesus a lot. It cost God the Father a lot. It cost him the death of a son. Now here's how spiritual growth works, because I think we get this wrong as churches. Because there's, there's sort of this pendulum that swings. So on one side, you've got the conservative-leaning type theological churches, and, and I'm about as fundamental as they get. I put the fun in fundamentalism. Um, but in this branch of churches often, what you get is people that love the holiness of God. And let me put it another way. People that love the rule system of God. They are all about it. And some of you have been in these churches. Maybe you grew up in these churches. You can know that you grew up in this type of church is if you went to church week after week and you left more often than not feeling condemned, ashamed, and afraid. If you felt like you never measured up or maybe you left feeling proud that you did measure up, that you made it through one week and you only cussed 17 times because that's what these churches care about. On the conservative-leaning side, then you've got the liberal-leaning side. And this is, the God is love, and it's all good. You do what you want. God's going to give you a big, warm hug for all of eternity. But they don't talk about holiness and the fact that God has standards. On both sides, I, I believe there's an error. On both sides, unless we understand that God is 100% holy and 100% loving, we actually will not grow spiritually. Because I would say, 
I, I would say to, to the people who are the God is love camp, and that's, I love that God is love. Like, if you've been here any amount of time, you know, I'm like, man, God loves you and you and maybe you and you, maybe you, I don't know, you work with kids. I mean, God loves most of us in here. <laughs> but, but the people who don't mention God's holiness, they say, oh, God's just so loving. I say, well, my God, the God of the Bible, I think he loves more than your God, the God who just willy-nilly accepts everyone. And they say, what do you, how could you say that? My God just loves everyone. I say, well, what did it cost your God to love? It cost the God of the Bible the death of his son. It cost the God of the Bible the father turned his back on the infinite perfect relationship. And Jesus was forsaken in a way he had never been. His heart was torn, literally melting. And this psalm points to these things. He was dying of thirst. He was getting pierced. All of these things because God loved you and paid a high cost. Last service, I was, I was talking about the, this, this idea of losing and death and how big it can be and how the, the closer you are to someone, the more pain you feel when you lose them. The, the truth of it is, is that the churches that are all about love but they don't talk about God's holiness, they have a cheap love. And we know that that's not the type of love we want, even in the human experience. We want a real, gritty, committed, costly love. We, we want love that somebody sacrificed for. We want love that maybe someone is even willing to die for. In my family, we talk about death all the time. Silas, I'm not even sure he understands that death means you leave this shell for a little bit of time. Because Silas will bring up death with the grandparents. And I think it's hilarious. Just the other day, he was uh, sitting on, I believe it was Silas, sitting on my mother-in-law's lap. And she's here. Don't look at her. Make her feel embarrassed. Silas was sitting on her mother-in-law's lap, and he, he looked at her ring. My mother-in-law has an amazing ring. It's like if you threw her in the gulf, she would never resurface. It's amazing. And what makes it more amazing, because it was handed down to her from her mother, and her mother got it from Audrey Hepburn. Audrey Hepburn stole it off the Titanic, and now it's in that ring. Um, it's really cool. Because when Melody goes to be with Jesus... I called dibs for Amy because there's like this expectation in suburbia that after 20 years, I'm supposed to like do more than I've already done for my wife. I've already given her 3.2 children and a house. She should be happy, but no diamonds must ensue. But now I look at this ring on my mother-in-law's finger and I think I dodged a bullet. I get to give Amy the heart of the ocean as soon as Melody goes to be with Jesus. Now, when I say that, I'm hoping that my father-in-law is queuing in and earning all of the romance points by shedding a single tear because he loves Melody. Because there's been a long relationship there. They've been married for many, many years, and they've sacrificed for each other, and they've pressed in to love each other. In the moment... When, when they are separated, whoever dies first, I've got my pool going with Silas. I don't really, Charlie. It's not a bad idea, though. I mean, because we love Jesus. Charlie loves Jesus. Everyone's wondering, like, do you really talk to your in-laws this way? Every single day. But I talk to myself this way and my kids this way. I think, man, that love, it costs a lot. There, there's going to be a hole there that can't be filled. On the flip side, on the flip side, if you're over here, 
a holy God who is not loving, he isn't really as holy. Just like a loving God who isn't holy isn't really as loving because it cost, didn't cost that God anything. It didn't cost him. He didn't put in the time. He didn't put in the effort, the sacrifice, the blood, sweat, and tears, the things that make love great. On the other side, a holy God who isn't loving isn't actually as holy. And, and the weird thing about holiness in churches is that we put it to a set of rules. We have the do's and the don'ts. What are things you're not allowed to do? You can't drink in public excessively. Um, and, and just so you know, with all the grace that I preach, people, because I'm a pastor, which I don't confess to strangers, um, they, they still are addicted to the rules because of the church culture. And I know I've looked at the history of this area. We are a very conservative theological area. So people are addicted to these rules. And here's why I know. Because I am a pastor and the people who know it treat me differently all the time. When I'm at um, small groups and Bible studies, I've preached the free good news of Jesus so often that every once in a while, people will say a bad word. And you know what happens when people say a bad word around a pastor? It's like everyone has a rubber band that turns their neck to see what my face is like just because someone said a word. And it's usually just a tier two cuss word. It's not even a level one bad word. But they will whip their necks around and they'll say, ooh, what did you think? Or, or here's something else that happens. Sometimes I go out on occasion to socialize with human beings outside of church gatherings. And I know it's weird for some of you because some of you aren't used to seeing your pastor in bars or places with alcohol. But you know what I love? And this just happened recently. I walked into a place where alcohol was being served. And there's nothing funnier as a pastor, especially the way that I think and view God and the Bible, when I walk into a place where people have gone past their limit of drinking, they try to sober themselves up instantly. There is no instant sober when a pastor walks into a room. It's super funny to me because I know exactly what's going on. I know what's going on when I walk in. And you guys, let's be honest, at the chapel, um, I'm stealing the slogan from the Agape Moms group. So our new tagline is, the chapel at Fishhawk, all about Jesus, bring your mess. Because we are a hot mess. And when I've walked in and seen people try to sober up or people look at me when I'm a pastor, it, we've all seen that person, right, that's had three too many drinks. And then the pastor walks in and you could see it in their head because they're overcompensating for everything. Hi, Pastor Ryan! Hello, minions of the darkness. <laughs> Are you dizzy? Are you messing around with them? I know what's going on. I didn't grow up in the church. I've seen this behavior before. <laughs> Yet, they do it. They treat me different because I'm a pastor, because they think that around me the rules matter more, because if I see the rules, God sees the rules. Guess what? God doesn't need my eyeballs to see you jack up your life. He doesn't. He sees it. What's more amazing is um, the times when I, I really don't tell people. We recently, we have a door that's broken on the way out here, this little push bar thing. It's going to cost me a kidney and a liver sample to, to get it fixed. But um, this guy comes. And he's fixing it. And he's from New York. And I was told this accent was so bad in the first service, don't ever do it again. But he was, he was from New York. And he said, hey, your door's broken. I said, yeah, that's why you're here, locksmith. <laughs> and he's talking. We're talking about pizza pies. We're talking about the best places to go in New York. My wife is embarrassed for me right now. And uh, as we're talking, he's just letting words fly. Boom this, bleep that. And I'm like, yeah, man, I'm so pumped. You don't know I'm a pastor. This is making my day. Nobody cusses around me without doing the weird neck snap thing. 
And then at the very end, he goes, hey, can I get your number on email? I'll email you the invoice. I'm like, yeah. I walk over to get my card. I get my card. I walk back over. I say, here you go, man. You're the pastor? I'm like, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't confess otherwise. But you have tattoos on your arm. I thought you were the facilities man or something. You chose wrong. You dirty, cussing sinner. That's exactly what I didn't say. But that's what we behave like in the church. We behave this way. Because me and this, this locksmith, man, we talked about drinking beer. We talked about all of the things that his children had done. We talked about all the stuff we hate. We just went for it. So when I came back with my thing, and he was the thing, and I was like, yeah, tattoos on pastors. He said, I did. I can't believe that you're a pastor. What kind of church are you running here? I said, one for hot messes like me and you. I might come to this church. I don't want him to. We already have too many mafia people from New York. But I'm really trying to up my Asian quota so I can have friends like myself. Okay? Because here's, here's what's happening we get addicted to the holiness. And our attempt to reach God on our own is not feeble like trying to climb a ladder that's impossibly high. Our attempt to reach God's standards, which is what these churches are doing. If you walk out of church each week and you either feel ashamed and guilty and condemned and beat up, or you walk out feeling better than other people. If you've ever left a church gathering feeling one of those two ways, you are in the camp, holy, moralistic people, but you're actually not being holy God's way. You've lowered God's bar down to where you can reach it, and everyone that reaches your height is good, and everyone else is not. These are the places that you walk out of feeling like someone is just pointing at you as you walk in and out. These are the churches where you walk in, and the Christians are standing up by the cross saying, come be like me, instead of kneeling face down saying, there's more room, come and kneel, we're messy together, come on. This is the difference. You trying to reach God, I said in the first service, would be like you laying on the ground and having someone put a mountain on you and having your kids start throwing sand on top of the mountain. And God is not at the top of the mountain. He's at the farthest galaxy in the universe. And it's you being smashed under a mountain with your kids throwing more sand on you, people laughing and pointing, and you saying, I can make it to the farthest galaxy if I start wiggling now. The cosmic chasm between us and God is so vast, which is why so many churches and people lower the bar down and make it about the little rules. And I'm all for rules. But that's not what the Bible is all about. The Bible is all about Jesus and how he changes our lives. Because Jesus saw the, the state we were in and became the substitute. Every great story has the substitute. J.R. Tolkien says this. He says, if you want to make a great story, you've got to have somebody who stands in the gap, somebody who goes into danger to keep other people safe. You've got to have somebody that puts their life on the line to save other lives. This is what makes a great story, right? Nobody, nobody is on their computer or in their journal just gripped with the stories that don't have that, right? How many books and reviews have you read about the shows that, that don't have the hero, Nobody is having a life-changing moment because they watch The Real Housewives of Atlanta. Nobody's like, whoa, these heroic people inspired me. 
But you'll meet people who have actually changed their life because they saw Braveheart or the Lord of the Rings. You'll meet people who actually shifted their life because they read or watched a story of somebody who stepped into the gap to keep others safe. This is amazing. This is what is happening in this moment with Jesus. He steps in the gap and says, it's not these little rules. It's that you're under a mountain of sin. You are a hundred billion light years from God and his standards. So I will step in the gap and all that you could not do, I will do. All that you deserve for your sin, I will take. And then I will give you all of my perfection. If God is holy only, we might change out of fear. We've all done that. When I was a youth pastor, I remember telling, we did these beach youth group nights in the summer. And as a youth pastor, I was this very legalistic young youth pastor. And I would tell all the girls, please, no two pieces. Because if you wear a two piece, then the boys will lust after you. And I I only had to stop and think for about six months before I realized boys will lust after another 13 year old girl if she's wearing a nun outfit. It does not matter. If you've not met a 13-year-old boy lately, they're more hypercharged than we were. We had to actually hunt for the sinful brokenness of sexuality. They have it on their phones 24 hours a day. So I realized, hey, giving these rules aren't going to change their heart. So I asked God, God, what, what changes a heart? It's not just listing out the rules of do's and don'ts. It's getting deeper, drilling down. If people say God is all love and accepts you no matter what, then why ever change? And let's be honest, we're in the suburbs. We're on the tail end of the self-esteem movement. Praise be to God if we finally stop handing out participation medals in the next 10 years. I don't like those for my kids. My kids have gotten some participation medals. I take them away, and I give them to myself for participating in fatherhood. That's a real award. (laughs) Even though I did that to myself. And you, sorry, babe. Okay. We're on the tail end of this. We're, we all love each other. We all love ourselves. Sorry, I mean, we don't love each other. We love ourselves. So when I say, hey, God, thanks so much of you, some of you intuitively are thinking, he should because I'm pretty awesome. Some of you have been beating yourself up. You think, are you sure he loves me? Here, here's how I know. God is 100% holy and 100% loving. So we don't have to beat ourselves up anymore because Jesus was beat up enough for us. Jesus met the requirement that God put on humanity. We could not be more loved because when Jesus took all that we deserved, he gave us all that he deserved for a perfect life, which is why Bible authors say crazy things like, God, I am upright and blameless before you, said Job, or God, you remember my sin no more. Could you imagine saying that to God? This is how Jesus' cry changes your life. You can't just see God as a rule monger. You can't just see God as a lovey-dovey, happy-feely guy. You have to understand that he is massively loving and completely holy, and his love cost him a lot because he had to pay for the price of sin and brokenness in our world. This is what melts people's hearts to love God. Because he is love, You get free grace, and because he is holy, we understand the high cost of that grace. The only way to get lasting transformation is when we grow in our knowledge of how good he is and how messy we are.
this is where I want you guys to think today. Because it won't change you if you just walk out of here thinking, I've got to be better, I've got to be better. It won't change you if you walk out here thinking, I'm so happy God loves me, I'm so happy God loves me. It will change you when you realize, I can't believe that a God like this would love a person like me. The chart that I often use for this looks like this. Some of you have seen this before. You meet Jesus right there, and your life is much messier than this. But as you grow with God, you can either look, grow in how holy he is, you see how holy God is, how amazing God is, and how sinful you are, or you can pretend that you're not as sinful as you think. Now here's what happens. Oh wait, I was going to try this so I could be like a football commentator. Are you guys ready for this? Because I'm not, and neither is my iPad. Yes! You guys, check this out. Here is you. Queen. <laughs> okay, that was nerdy. I'm done. Okay, uh, that's you. You come to know Jesus. And when you first get to know Jesus, you start right here. I'm this bad, and God is this good. That's like, I've lied, I've cussed, I've chewed, I've gone with girls who dude. And Jesus is this big. And you're like, yes, Jesus loves me. But then you realize, no, wait, the pastor talked to me about idolatry. Like every time I look for something that, to, to find my worth and value and significance, that's actually turning away from the infinite, beautiful God and turning toward finite, jacked up things. So I'm trading God for a 401k. Bad trade-off. That's a sin. So actually, I'm worse than I think I am. That's going down here. And then you read the Bible. And God actually cares not only about what I say, but God is in my brain. He knows what I think. So God is even more amazing and holy than I ever knew. So as that happens, you grow. So now you're this bad down here, and God is this good. But what gets bigger? Starts with a the k and rhymes with a the ross. The cross. Good job, class. Okay. The cross gets bigger. And when the cross gets bigger, you see more Jesus. So the way to spiritual growth is not just to say, oh, God is loving or, oh, God is holy. Like, God is so holy and so loving. He made Jesus bigger day after day for me so that now we can say what the Bible says. The craziest lines in the Bible. I call them the crazy lines. God remembers your sin no more. God is a perfect, infinite being. But because Jesus stepped in our place, God says, you guys, you did something. What was that thing you did again? God has, because of Jesus, what I affectionately call pregnancy brain. Women, you know what I'm talking about, right? Pregnancy brain is where you lose things. Let's be honest. Sorry, I've been bashed on the pregnancy. We're going to call it the man brain, okay? Because here's my daily routine with Amy. Hey, babe, have you seen my keys? Have you seen my keys? Have you checked in your pocket? Oh, thanks. Five seconds later. Hey, babe, have you seen my wallet? Have you seen my wallet? Have you checked in the bowl where you always put your wallet? It's right there. This is a miracle. This is every day. No joke, you guys. I need to get one of those Bluetooth things, like a, a wallet chain, like the 90s, so I always have my wallet with me. But then I, I would look even weirder than I already look. So, so this man brain thing. God remembers your sin no more. How many of you feel that way? I just saw you go, hmm, I saw that. Hmm. No, don't hang your head in shame because your shame is up here on the cross. There you go. Here's what I saw. How many of you could say, God, remember your sin no more? I physically saw some of you go like this. 
And then I picked on somebody in the back because he came for two sermons, so I felt like he deserved it. And then he said, no, now he's picked on me. I said, no, but it's over here. And then he gave me the thumbs up. What just happened in his heart is the small taste of how spiritual change actually happens. You do something bad, and you feel like, oh, no, God's going to get me. Then someone reminds you, no, that's sin. Jesus took that. Leave that up here. There's my shame. Now, walk away from it. All of my sin, all of my shame is right there. And I got to put on Jesus' clothes. And now when God looks at me, he says, you are so blameless and beautiful and holy and wonderful, and you are without sin. The Bible says, I remember your sin no more. The Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far I have removed your sin from you. Do you believe that, or are you still stuck in a cycle of self-pity? Or are you on the other side where you just don't even think that your sin is that big of a deal? You don't see the holiness that had to be paid for. Either way, uh, until you come to this God who loves you right where you are but will not leave you where, where you are, until you come to this God who had to pay everything, who had to see an eternal love relationship ripped and torn, until you see how much it cost, your heart will not be changed. If you ever watch people during worship, you can, you can tell. Because we do these singing things here, and I love it. I People watch all the time. And you've got the people who... Um, well, you've got the people who raise their hands, right? We know these people. You've seen them. We've got the regular people who grew up in church. They just do field goal good. That's their move. You've got the people like me who can't find shirts long enough, so you always keep one hand lower, and you do like the Rocky Balboa for Jesus. But then you've got the people. They're like singing their guts out, and they move. And no, it's not just crazy. They, it's not just because they grew up in a Pentecostal church. It's because of that and. Or, or maybe you're not that person that moves because I've seen some of you move. I've heard some of you sing, and I'd prefer it if you just sat still and kept your mouth shut. Jesus wants you to sing, but I just, for my own sake, if I'm in front of you. <laughs> but but God, God wants to hear your voice. And, and during songs, I've seen some of the hardest people broken down. I've seen men and women who I thought had hearts that were sturdy as an anvil be melted. And it's not because someone told them rules. It's not just because someone told them God is loving. It's because for the first time, maybe in a long time, some of you today are realizing that the rules are way more impossible than you ever thought. And you can't believe that God would ever love you that much so that now I can say, you're blameless. You're a son of the king. There's nothing you can do that could turn God's anger towards you. There's nothing you can do that would make God condemn you or pour out wrath upon you. There's nothing. You're done. You don't have to give in. You're done. There's nothing that can hold back anything difficult in your family lives. You're done. If God can pay for your sin on the cross, he can make anything change in your lives. It's done. It's paid for. He's strong enough. If you don't believe it, you're not believing this enough. You're done. It's free. You're adopted and brought in. You're done. When you work with kids and you want to lynch them up, give them to the other children's director because Jesus loves you. You're done. You're done. When you have to get here early in the morning and you're like, man, now we have two services and we have to fold bulletins twice in the morning and you get mad at me. It's okay to get mad at me 
guess what? I'll remember your sins forever because I'm vindictive and petty, but Jesus says it's done. I, I won't. Actually, I love most of you guys the most. It's the people in the back rows. I, I don't, actually, that's not true. Uh, yeah, woo. Uh, so uh, it, it's just, this is what free grace is, and this is what we forget. So we either walk around in self-pity or for once in our life, we can be who Jesus saved us to be, and that's what will melt your heart. And some of you are thinking, as long as God doesn't melt my heart too much, watch out. When God gets a hold of you, when you see how much it cost and how much he loved you, you're going to be one of these people at the chapel because we have a diverse, you guys are a crazy mixed batch. You guys are more mixed up than those uh, trail mix bags that you get. We've got some nutty people, some fruity people, some crunchy people. We got some people who made it in from a batch that was gone bad and stale and they snuck into this bag. When you remember that, when you see that, you know what we're going to have to do again? We're going to be addicted to Jesus. And, and now we've gone from that one crowded, stuffy service to, to two spacious services. I told uh, somebody this morning, I said, I've, all, I've got a maximum number of services, and I'm going to try to reach it, whether by breeding or leading people to come to know this Jesus, the God of the Bible. I would encourage you to join me on this mission. Breed or lead. It's going to be our 2018 campaign. Just kidding. (laughs) Let's pray before I get more ridiculous with this microphone. Oh, God, it is so good. You are so good. God, I went super long, so I'm going to make this fast, Lord. People need heart change. They need to do it your way, not the religious, overbearing way. They need to see you as holy and loving so that they can understand the high cost that was paid for our free grace. And, Lord, help us to understand how personal transformation works so that we can be transformed into your likeness, not into our own. Help us walk today knowing that our sins are not remembered because of Jesus dying on our behalf. It's in his name we pray. Amen.